News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about clowns. I know, I know. It's a very sensitive topic for a lot of you out there. Many who have a deep-seated fear of clowns. For some really strange reason, I'm not which is kind of why I find this topic so fascinating. I know grown men who aren't afraid of anything, including one I happen to be married to, who is deathly afraid of clowns. Where does this fear come from? Well, we're going to delve into that now, the history of all of it, with the help of Dr. Madeline Steiner, who's a postdoctoral fellow for the Founding Documents Initiative in the Department of History at the University of South Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's talk about clowns, first of all, the history of clowns. Like how far back do we see them in showing up in shows and as part of society? Well, clowning really is an ancient uh, art form. If you go back to ancient Greek theater, you'll see clown figures. Um, In the medieval period, you had court jesters, which were uh, a type of clowns. So it's got a very extensive, long history. But somewhere along the way, Dr. Steiner, things turned. What happened? Uh, Well, you know, if you look at the history, uh, for most of clowning's existence, it was an adult form of entertainment. Uh, Clowns weren't really meant for for children. Uh, In the 19th century, in the North American circus, for example, uh, the circus itself was viewed as something kind of dirty and stigmatized. Uh, there was, you know, a gambling and drinking and dirty jokes at the circus, and clowns were responsible for a lot of that crude humor. Uh, these were places that men attended by themselves. They left the wife and kids at home, um, and and they would view these acts that others saw as as kind of scandalous. Um, So really, the clown being associated with children's entertainment is a more modern um, development. Right. So adults were used to seeing clowns, children not so much. And so then was there something scary about the clowns that kind of scarred a whole generation of children? Like, is that what happened? Um, well, you know, it depends on who you ask. Uh, I've seen some psychological studies that say that there's something kind of deep-seated in the human psyche that views any figure in a mask as scary. And so the clown with their painted on smiles uh, can be frightening because we don't know what their real intentions are. Um, And, you know, clowns became something associated with kids in the 20th century. Uh, You had hospital clowns, which I think today many people might not see as comforting, but might see as a little bit scary. Um, But by the late 20th century, uh, a number of historical events uh, did come around and kind of, uh, maybe not traumatized, but associated the clowns with horror. Um, You look at serial killer John Wayne Gacy and his history as a clown being a a touchstone moment that really cemented the clown with horror Um, and media things like Stephen King's book, It, uh, further just cemented that connection for a lot of people and uh, really turned the clown back into something uh, more devious and adult. Because now it almost seems like we embrace the evil clown idea as opposed to the funny clown idea. Yeah, um, uh, there was one study I read that um, was conducted in 2008 that concluded that clowns were 
quote, universally disliked by children today. I've heard that. I saw this study too. <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Like, what are the stats about that? Um, I'd have to go go check their their stats and their research project. But, um, you know, just anecdotally, you do see clowns in a lot more horror context today than I think you do um, whimsical, funny children's entertainment. So it, it's a, an interesting historical cycle here that we went from clowns as something dark and, and a little bit sinister. Uh, we had a short period where they were seen as fun and, and uh, lovable. And now we're we're back to that that dark history. Okay, that's a good point then. So have we come full circle with that then? Are we, is this, the way that we view clowns today, is that more historically accurate versus the happy clown? Um, well, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same as uh, the clowns that I study in the 19th century, uh, where they're not so much, you know, dark and murderous, but uh, they will, you know, tell you some raunchy jokes and and perform um, some uh, unsavory comedy routines. Um, today, we've we've really got uh, that horror association, and you didn't see that in uh, the 19th century. Dr. Center, I have to ask you, how does one end up studying 19th century clowns? And when you tell <laughs> people what is their reaction to that um well you know, most of them ask you know well is that uh, that's really what you study um, <laughs> is that and, really a and... thing they go <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and, and more broadly my research concerns the uh, development of traveling entertainment and circuses as a business enterprise um, and i study how these traveling shows ushered in the age of entertainment as big business in the 19th century. But when I do my archival research, I come across a lot of really entertaining and weird sources and clowns happen to be the subjects of a lot of them. So whenever I get a chance to write just an interesting, quirky piece about some of the things that I find in the archives, I really enjoy that. So in the 19th century, then, I would imagine that traveling entertainment was the primary form of entertainment, wasn't it? Like that was a big deal when a traveling circus or vaudeville show or something came to town. Oh, yeah. Um, those were the most popular forms of entertainment. Um, and we have the development of the railroad to thank for that. You know, earlier days, uh, you would have to travel to a big city to see a professional show. Maybe they might travel by wagon uh, within a short radius of these large cities. But with the development of the railroad, um, shows were able to you know, come to patrons who had never been able to see professional performances before. And the spectacles that they brought, especially the circus, were really captivating. You know, where else would people in the 19th century have a chance to see an elephant and a zebra other than on these occasional circus days? And so the nighttime entertainment then, is that obviously that changed things, right? The kids weren't coming out at nighttime. So is that why a lot of it was considered adult entertainment? Uh, yes, um, historically, there's been some stigma with any sort of traveling performers um, and theater in general in North America was pretty stigmatized. Uh, you know, you see ministers preaching from the pulpit about, you know, the sins of these traveling entertainment venues um, because there was little regulation for employees behavior. There's a lot of drinking. There might be some pickpocketing, um, some, some gambling going on. So uh, they people weren't bringing their kids. These were nighttime spectacles um, where one could expect to find these sort of seedy behaviors. But with the development of the railroad, um, 
entrepreneurs realized that by cleaning up their shows and inviting people to bring women and children, they can make a lot more money. Um, so folks like P.T. Barnum are responsible for this sort of um, cleaning up of the circus genre. And they really emphasized how they've you know, put prohibitions on their employees' behavior. Um, they may have hired Pinkerton detectives to ensure audience safety. Um, they really wanted people to start bringing in uh, women and kids and make these uh, these big family fe- family-friendly spectacles. So they turned it into like big circus. So they turned it into a business. Yeah. Um, when we think of, you know, the Barnum and Bailey Circus today, um, which is actually uh, coming back after a brief hiatus this fall, um, that's the type of circus that they were creating in the 19th century, this big business um, venture. Uh, traveling entertainment owners were you know, kind of our first big entertainment millionaires. This is so fascinating. What questions do you still have? Like you're obviously working, you're doing research. Like what is your latest area of research? Um, right now I'm investigating um, the culture among circus employees. Um, specifically, I'm looking at non-performers actually. So I've, I've kind of moved away from clowns and I'm looking at uh, the manual laborers with uh, these shows and looking at what life was like for these primarily men on the road with the shows and how they negotiated trying to, you know, keep their right. own traditions uh, and balance that with uh, the new expectations of owners. Well, wow. I'd like your job. Your job sounds fascinating. Dr. Steiner, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Madeline Steiner, postdoctoral fellow for the Founding Documents Initiative in the Department of History at the University of South Carolina. Come on, admit it. She does. She sounds like she has a fascinating job. She studies, you know, traveling, entertainment, circuses, vaudeville, all of that from the 19th century. That would be so fascinating to look at, right? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here we go, heading into a long weekend. And I know the hot topic is BC Ferries. So Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun with us now. So Vaughn, I was just on the BC Ferries website. Oh, yeah. So I thought I would check. How's current- it doing? <laughs> I thought I would check to see how current conditions are for that all important to us in the Swartz Bay route. And I got to tell you, it's not looking good today if you're planning to travel and you, and you don't have a reservation. No, the Ferries CEO says... <laughs> almost says don't show up if you don't have a reservation. I was, 80% of travel on the two main routes now are people who've made reservations. So ferry sympathizes with people who discover they need to travel at the last minute, and they insist, Simi, that they have precautions in place to prevent people from gaming the system by making multiple reservations and then canceling. But um, this is a service that's still in the dark about many important things. And one of them is knowing whether if you make a reservation, you'll actually show up and take the ferry. Okay. Well, let's start with this press conference. They had this yesterday. This is two weeks after this whole situation started, this crisis started. We finally heard from everybody at BC Ferries. Yeah, it's quite a show, actually. Uh, we got uh, invited to the atrium, which is the lavish downtown Victoria headquarters for BC Ferries, and uh, take the transparent elevator up to the sixth floor. 
and you get taken into a meeting room. The television cameras are there. Uh, the CEO, Nicholas Jimenez, files in, but he's accompanied by well, a couple of vice presidents and others. And then after that's over, they take us uh, to a tour of the war room, which is what we called it anyway, being cynical journalists. It's the operations and security room. It's a room full of staffers and great big screen TVs and live on-time on monitoring and crisis centers and everything where they actually deal with some of the crises that have been happening over the last couple of weeks. So it was very informative and welcome. But, Simi, it's also, you know, as I said, two weeks since the crisis began. So it's not exactly as if this was a rush job. Exactly. Not exactly a rush job. So then what what did they admit to? Like, what did they say? Well, you know, they did admit to some stuff. Uh, I was struck by one of the things that Jimenez said, which is a big surprise. Uh, He admits that their communications have not exactly been optimum. And he even referred to the assembled news media as important partners in informing the public. Now, you wouldn't have known that over the last couple of weeks when you were struggling to find anybody at BC Ferries to explain anything. Uh, The second thing was, and we just referred to it, you know, the the technology just hasn't kept up. Ferries have spent a lot of money on high tech, but it's still not keeping up. And the data assembly wasn't keeping up. This is an interesting thing. He told us how many hamburgers they served on BC Day weekend last year, 25,000. He told us how many cones of ice cream they served, 7,000. But he admitted that BC Ferries does not have historic data assembled and analyzed so that they know if they get X number of reservations, what percentage of those reservations are actually going to show up. Okay. So I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> da- data management much. is is shall we say all over the map and hit and miss. Okay. So they're obsessed with like we they can tell me how many burgers and how much food people are eating, but they can't tell me who shows up for a reservation. Yeah. I don't understand no. how they think that's okay. Well clearly they don't. And you know that was the other theme of the day. I mean Jimenez didn't argue with any of the questions. Even even when I referred to what happened last week as a fiasco, uh, he kind of accepted it and went on and he he got all sorts of questions from everybody about where things are headed and all that. And and he was full of reassurances. I mean, look, it's clear, Simi, from what he said that in the short term, meaning this weekend and weekend traffic actually starts today, uh, BC Ferries is going all in. They've got every ship in service. They have standby crews of officers and engineers in case somebody phones in sick at the last minute. They've got a virtual online waiting room. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work, but it's intended to provide reassurances to people who are waiting uh, that their concerns are being addressed and looked after. They've got extra communication staff extra customer service staff. So it's all in full press, all hands on deck this weekend. And look, uh, this is kind of a last chance. He admits uh, you're going to have to assure public they can depend on the ferry service. Uh, I think we're all skeptics, but 
you know, uh, I guess what? You get to do this once, right? You get to hold the press conference, say we've learned our lessons from the past weekends where it didn't work. And this time is going to be different. So uh, I plan to be here Monday morning. I expect you do too. And Tuesday, and we'll be able to tell people how it's going. Yes, we will. In fact, I've already marked that on my calendar. I'm talking with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning about BC Ferry's big press conference that they had yesterday. So Vaughn, we heard about all the things they know they're doing wrong. The question is, what are they going to do to fix these things? Well, we the short-term stuff is all for this weekend. And, you know, they're going to try to improve everything and make sure all the ships are there and there's backup crews and all that. And, hey, they're even going to try to seduce the traveling public with face painting and misting stations and live performances in the ferry terminal. Uh, so, okay, you know, we'll see how they do. The other part of the press conference yesterday was interesting, though, is Jimenez, the CEO, did talk about longer-term fixes for the ferry service. So he is under no illusions that he's taken over a crown corporation, well, a sort of crown corporation, government-owned, but managed supposedly at arm's length. Uh, yesterday was sort of his sixth, sixth beginning of his sixth month on the job. And he says, this is a troubled service and we need some long-term fixes. And I'll give him this. He did talk openly about what some of those are. So, for example, this one's interesting. I don't know if the listener has ever had the experience of walking on the ferry in Tawasson to go to Vancouver Island. But uh, if you do try it sometime, uh, you will find that the parking lots out by the ferries are full. So yes. you, have to park, you have to park back where the water slides are in Tawasson. Hope the shuttle is working. When you get to the terminal and buy your walk-on ticket, you're then looking at a walk that, uh, if you're an old guy like me, it's going to feel like you're walking to Vancouver Island. Uh, and then you get to the waiting room, which is <laughs> roughly the size of a toilet cubicle is what it feels like, right? So yeah. he says they're going to address all that. They're going to look at ways to make the ferries more friendly for walk-ons. Uh, that's going to be onerous because the ferry service is clearly designed for cars. So maybe passenger services. I, I mean, I think the service needs a rethink. So let's yeah. go and let's see where that goes. Uh, recruitment of crew. So it's interesting on that too. He he said, look, they they are having trouble persuading uh, younger people, entry level people, that the ferries are a good job. Now, pays an issue, but you know, he said, you go out and look for a job and try to find a defined pe benefit pension plan as good as the one at ferries. The pay and benefits are good when you compare to a lot of private sector jobs, but. He had to admit that if you're talking to an 18-year-old, hey, we've got a good pension plan, well, exactly. isn't necessary. My dad tried to tell me that back in the day, and I didn't yeah. listen, so. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, but okay. Again, they're looking at that, and they're in negotiations with the ferry workers, so they're talking about increasing the entry-level pay, too. Uh, the fleet. So they've got some really old vessels built in the 1960s still, and vessels that need to be replaced. And he says, this is interesting, they've got a $5 billion capital replacement plan. So it includes some money for website and for better entry onto the ferries and making it easier for you to ticket and get on board. They're also talking about building a new fleet. 
$5 billion. That plan is in front of the independent ferry commissioner at the moment, but there'll be a business plan. So I asked him, are you going to let shipyards from all over the world bid to build these ships? Because that's what used to happen under the BC Liberals, and that's what the New Democrats used to criticize. And very interesting, he says, yes, we'll be taking bids from all over the world. So there's lots of places in the world that can build ships more cheaply than we do here in British Columbia. That's the reason the Liberals went that way. And it's interesting, Jimenez is saying that's the way it's going to be under the NDP, never mind what the NDP said in opposition. I guess there, there's no choice, right? If there's no place yeah. in BC that can handle the capacity, what do you do? <clears throat> well, yes. And, you know, that's a good point because one of the things we got yesterday in the briefing is that uh, British Columbia doesn't really have the capacity to build a fleet of ferries anymore. In fact, they told us, we got a good briefing on why there's been so much trouble with the coastal celebration. So BC Ferries books time for servicing at the dry dock in Victoria and Esquimalt, federal government owned. Federal government doesn't do the work. You have to persuade a private uh, operator to actually do the work. So they booked the coastal celebration into that dry dock Back in May, it was going to get serviced. None of the two companies in Victoria that service ferries took the bid. So they had to move the ship over to the shipyard in North Vancouver, and it was backed up. And that's why the Coastal Celebration wasn't in service over Canada Day. It comes out. There's a breakdown and problems. Another week-long delay before they get it back in to get serviced. So... I think against that backdrop, Simi, you're right, that that's why uh, BC Ferries CEO Nicholas Jimenez is not looking to local BC shipyards to bail the ferry service out for the new vessels they need to build. Uh, they will be able to bid, but so will international companies. And what we've seen in the past is uh, BC yards can't compete with the kind of uh, productivity and cost structure that foreign shipyards have. Hmm. Did they? Did you get the impression, though, Vaughn, that they understand that what, what we're seeing right now for BC Ferries is a crisis of confidence? Like people don't yes. really have faith in the system. You're you're quite right, and that was sort of his exit line to reporters. So we recognize that before we get to the long term stuff, we have to deal with the short term crisis of confidence. He didn't quite use that word, but I think that's what came through. That he recognizes. I guess what I would say is he recognizes this is kind of a last chance. Uh, they've recognized all the problems. They've acknowledged them. They've admitted. They've confessed their sins to the news media and even described us as partners in informing the public. And I came away thinking, okay, well, you know, this is a starting point uh, for either a new relationship in terms of candor and fairness and out, out, uh, transparency, or we're going to be saying he tried and it didn't work. And I think the, the first test will be how things go this weekend. And we will be talking about it. So thanks for that, Vaughn. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It is so disheartening these days when you see footage of people just walking out of stores with stolen merchandise and seemingly getting away with it. It's even worse when you see it happen in person. And I know a lot of you are seeing it happen in person. You told me so when we talked about this last week. 
Well, the Retail Council of Canada has reported a significant increase in retail theft. Their number says it's gone up by something like 300% since the start of the pandemic. Some retailers have responded by checking more receipts or installing gates to uh, when you leave the store in order to check your merchandise. And yeah, that, all that seems to do is kind of anger the customers who say they're being unfairly targeted and they didn't steal anything. So what should or what could retailers do to fight this? Well, Lisa Amlani is the principal and co-founder of the Retail Strategy Group and joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. How bad do you think this problem is? I would say it's pretty bad. Um, I think what we're seeing today is that retailers are just facing this crazy amount of shrink and loss of inventory due to theft. So they're adding more security. There's spotters, uh, the receipt checks, which you know we've read all about, uh, Costco and Walmart and Canadian Tire putting in receipt checks. And then locking up product and locking doors, it's really deterring the customer from shopping and spending time in physical stores. Right. I know a lot of customers, though, Lisa, would argue that, well, why did they get rid of all of their salespeople? Why did they get rid of all their cashiers? Like, you know, this is kind of a response to they made the stores kind of empty of workers. Yeah, I think what we're seeing today, and, and you'll see this, I would say, even the last couple of years post-pandemic, is that frontline workers are just expected to do so much more. So you're going to see, you know, less staff. But if you think about what is on their plate, they, they have so much more to do from fulfillment to security and, of course, selling to the customer. Um, there, there's a lot of challenges right now with retaining staff because there's a lot more options today in terms of working in retail. Now, when you go into a store and things are locked up and you have to call someone to, you know, to open up a mascara for you, I mean, it's going to deter the customer. And they're not, the employees are actually not having the best experience either. So you're seeing a lot of, um, it's difficult to retain employees today across retail. Like if that's the case, if they're going to make me do that, why wouldn't I just, you know, I'll order it online, have it delivered to my house. Yeah. And I would say most people are doing that. I mean, most customers are digital first anyway, especially if you look at um, Gen Z and millennials and of course the boomers, like we are, I'm well close. (laughs) We are definitely digital first. And from a price comparison perspective, that's where we go. But now from a convenience perspective, and just to, you know, not be um, in that space where you're being looked at in a certain way, because the retailer thinks you're stealing, nobody wants to feel that. So we're going to see an increase in shopping online. But the physical store is still very important for that customer experience. And retailers really need to step up in how they're handling anti-theft. But how? How do they do that? Well, there's a few ways. Now, today we're seeing spotters, we're seeing receipt checks, and of course, even locking doors. Um, We're also seeing an increase in things like RFID and smart labels, uh, smart checkouts, smart shopping carts like Amazon's Just Walkout technology. Um, And there's an increase in training because what we are seeing across retail, as I mentioned earlier, is that they're just, the frontline workers are just expected to do more. So if we increase training in certain areas of the store, we can improve the customer experience, which will keep the customer coming back. The last thing you want to do is deter the customer from spending 
with you in the first place. But what kind of training could help out? So if we think about the different um, the tasks that you have in the store and what's increased post-pandemic, if you think about it from a customer experience perspective, if we're training staff on product, on um, product knowledge, branding, and how to make the customer feel special and delightful, <laughs> this is the experience that customers want. They want that special uh, experience in the store. They want to feel great when they're shopping. These are some of the things where we need to increase training on is the customer service aspect of the customer experience. You know, Lisa, it's funny you say that because that sounds very old school. That sounds like what people talk about in the good old days of what it was like going to a store that has been replaced by just, you know, we'll just get your money and leave. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing today is that customers want to feel like they're building a relationship with the brand that they're buying into. We have so many more choices than we've ever had. And customers are fickle because they have all these choices. So if we're building trust and a relationship with the customer, it's going to increase footfall, it's going to increase full price sales and gross margin, and this is what retailers really want. So it is a win-win if retailers spend the time on training in that old school way of clienteling and calling the customer and talking to them. This is where we need to go back to. Right, but isn't that, it's kind of rethinking their entire business model, isn't it? It is, but it is, it is a balance of um, the old school way of working and fundamentals of retail, but also adding that technology and digital tools to help with things like anti-theft, but also capturing data to help you understand your customer and what they're actually looking for. It will fuel better uh, assortment planning decisions, design decisions, and it will help you collaborate with your customer which again will increase that brand loyalty. So you're saying that if somebody were to, so you walk in a store and they're immediately, hi, how can I help you? Oh, can I show you? Like if, if you have more people trying to connect with the customer than people who want to perhaps shoplift that store won't go in there. Absolutely. Yes. I believe that will deter the customer from shoplifting. But I mean, there's so much more to what's happening today. Um, you know, with shoplifting, there's organized crime. There's, so it's not only about petty theft. And as you said earlier, people are literally walking out with product and there's nothing we can do. So we need to deter that customer from doing that by spending time with the customer. It's almost like flipping the script a little bit. Okay, I, I think people would love this. They've always wanted, I think, more service and you know from stores, but stores seem to be going in the opposite direction. Retailers are going in the kind of throwing up more barriers as opposed to creating a more welcoming atmosphere, which is what you're suggesting. Yeah, and I think when you add these friction points, it not only deters the customer in that moment from shopping, but it'll deter them from the brand altogether. And these barriers and hurdles, I mean, this is not what the customer wants. It may be what the retailer needs, but what they do is need to spend more time with their customer to understand what they want and why they're behaving this way. And if it's a fact of, uh, you know, the product assortment is too expensive, then that's something that we need to revisit as retailers. Hmm. All right, Lisa, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. 
There are a lot of concerns right now for wildfires in our province. And of course, there is. There's so many of them burning. Uh, lots of people who've been out of their homes now. Many, many more people who are on evacuation alert just in case, like thousands of people. And we're heading into what is traditionally the hottest, driest, most acti- like most active month when it comes to wildfires. And that is August, of course. But those are in other parts of the province too. But what about urban areas? We saw what happened in Nisoyas, the concern there when the fire got too close. But what if there was a fire, say, right in downtown Vancouver? What about Stanley Park? Uh, what about the concerns there? It is very dry in Stanley Park right now. Vancouver Board of Parks and Recreation says they are concerned about those conditions and they are asking the public to be extra vigilant about fire safety in the month of August. On top of that, there's an ongoing looper moth infestation. They said those are that's um, exacerbated the conditions uh, in the park too. So very dry uh, combination of things that are going on there. Like what would we do if that happened? If there was a fire in a place like Stanley Park? Well, joining us now is Dr. Kelsey copez gerbitz a researcher in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Is this something that we study? Like, do we have plans for urban wildfires? That's a great question. And I think as you kind of pointed out um, at the top of the story, you know, fires in urban areas are really not new. Um, We saw the emergence of the the 2003 Okanagan Mountain Park fire that eventually evacuated Kelowna. 27,000 people were evacuated then and over 200 homes were lost. And more recently, the Elephant Hill fire burned right through the Elephant Hill Provincial Park into communities and forced evacuations there, as well as structure loss. So I think the, you know, the reality is that urban fires are not new. Um, what is new, though, is our kind of increased understanding and the reality of this risk for particularly coastal communities. Okay, so what do you say? What, what is new with our understanding of that? So we are seeing um, hotter and drier conditions really affecting the coast. Um, You know, we saw uh, droughts happening um, last year in in really significant amounts. And this has really kind of forced a a revisiting, I think, a rethinking of how we address wildfire risk on the coast in ways that other parts of the province have been dealing with for a long time. So what this new understanding is leading us to do is think about how do we prepare for and prevent fires in urban areas and in wildland urban interface areas. One of the ways that our um, understanding has advanced is that people are most at risk, communities are most at risk from a fire that could be within two kilometers or up to 10 kilometers of their homes. So think about your own home. Do you live within two kilometers or maybe 10 kilometers of Stanley Park or Pacific Spirit Park or maybe North or West Vancouver? Then potentially you're at risk from a fire. So what do we do then? So what, what kind of plan should we have? So there's different, um, different things that different people can do. And I think it's important to recognize that everybody has a responsibility to be proactive about wildfire. Um, the first is managing these fire-prone areas. So how do we manage our parks to reduce the, the hazardous and flammable vegetation that could potentially catch on fire? You mentioned the looper moth. Um, it is really important to make sure that those fuels don't build up and create more hazardous conditions. Uh, at individual community levels, say municipalities, they really need to focus on developing plans for potential evacuations. Sometimes it's not about the actual fire that's coming, but maybe your community completely loses power or communication. Or what if a fire affects the Seymour watershed? 
people in Vancouver would be really seriously affected by that. And finally, both individuals and families um, need to be prepared for a sudden evacuation. And this goes for wildfire and other potential natural disasters as well. Things like having a to-go bag, um, knowing where your family might meet if they were potentially separated, and also being really careful to follow any campfire bans or other kinds of fire bans that are happening across the province. See, when you say all that, Dr. Copas Kermitz, I think that all makes sense, right? But I don't, I don't think people know any of that, or they don't pay attention, or they don't, they don't believe they need to know this because even people who live in wildfire-prone areas don't follow all those rules. And people in the city, like we've heard in the news about people, you know, catching people building fires on the beach in Stanley Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really challenging um, for people to realize that the risk is is urgent and immediate and imminent, and that I think people can sometimes individuals can feel kind of powerless to affect um, something like as big or as uh, potentially scary as wildfire. But it really is down to individual behavior. Um, you know, the same way that we don't like to see people littering in the streets. You know, we don't like to see people intentionally or accidentally setting a fire. Um, there are kind of there is provincial legislation that actually could fine you or um, potentially involve jail time if you break some of these campfire bans. Yeah, that's the key. I think enforcement is definitely the key on that. Listen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. That's Dr. Kelsey copas Gerbitz, who's a researcher in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences at the University of British Columbia, talking about you know plans for mitigating urban wildfires. And yes, we do have those concerns. A lot of talk about worries of Stanley Park right now, considering how dry it is with the looper moth infestation, plus just the dry drought conditions that they've had. Uh, and yeah, people don't pay attention. They don't listen. They light fires. People do it on purpose. It is a concern there. What do you think should be done? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about short-term rentals. They are very popular. Have you ever gone online to a website like Airbnb and just looked at your neighborhood to see how many Airbnbs are available? It's you know probably shocking. I know that I'm always shocked when I take a look at that. Now, a lot of them are not legal. People think they are, but the rules in Vancouver in particular are are pretty strict about what is allowed and what isn't, but people are being very liberal with their interpretation of that. So where is the crackdown on that? Well, Vancouver City Council has taken note of this. They have talked about this. Some municipal politicians saying they're trying to figure out a way to enhance enforcement or to crack down on this. But could they use some help from the province on that? Probably. That's why we thought we would ask BC's Minister of Housing on that. Ravi Kalon joins us now to talk about it. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Have you heard about this from municipal politicians? Are they worried about the short-term rental problem? Oh, yeah. It's a big issue. Uh, It comes up often, uh, not only from Vancouver, but communities throughout the province. Uh, Just yesterday, I was notified Victoria has data that they've seen a 28% increase in homes leaving for renters to uh, short-term rentals. And uh, and so there's major concerns. Even tourism-dependent communities 
which historically have said, hey, you know what, this is an important part of our, uh, our tourism economy, now are coming to me and saying, hey, we need help because uh, they can't find places for their workers to live and uh, they can't even operate their, um, their tourism businesses. So it, it's a major issue that, uh, that we're working on right now. Okay, because I guess this is also part of the whole housing rental affordability issue, though, isn't it? Because if people can't find a place to rent, and we know they can't, isn't this the reason why? So why isn't the, like, what is the province going to do about it? Well, you're right. Uh, we have seen a significant increase in properties that used to be available for renters, now uh, only available for short-term rentals, uh, and the numbers only uh, continue to increase. Uh, so we've taken a couple steps. The first step was to identify where the challenges actually are, the, the challenges local governments are facing. So we partnered with UBCM, uh, the Union uh, of BC Municipalities, to uh, look at what are the challenges each community face because, you know, rural communities are facing different uh, issues than the cities, big cities. Uh, and then UBCM issued a report uh, earlier this year stating what their main challenges were. I mean, a lot of challenges, but I'd say fundamentally two big ones, which is one, access to data. Many communities have no idea who is uh, actually operating. Um, they don't know if they're legit, if they've actually got a business license or not. And then the, and the, and the second is enforcement. When they find out somebody's got an illegal uh, short-term rental, they, they don't have the tools to do anything. Okay, so what can you do about that? And, and when is the government going to do something? Well, we put uh, in our uh, Homes for People housing strategy that we would take action on that. Uh, policy work is happening right now. We've been engaging with UBCM on what the policy changes should and could look like. Uh, and we've committed to uh, our partners that this fall, there'll be legislation to address it. Okay, so are we talking about giving municipalities the tools here to levy big fines on people who are illegally operating short-term rentals? Well, we haven't exactly landed on what it'll look like. We, uh, we will over the coming weeks, uh, certainly uh, as I've committed to already this fall, we'll have legislation. But we are looking at the challenging questions that they've laid out is uh, how do they know who's doing what? Uh, if they have rules around uh, short-term rentals, how do they ensure that they're actually being followed? by folks because you know there's multiple issues we're dealing with one we have issues where more housing stock is leaving to short-term rentals which is actually putting pressure on all renters uh, because you know the rents are continuing to increase because our housing supply continues to decrease but we also have just complaints from people and communities saying hey there's a party happening down my street every weekend and i don't know what to do they go to local governments and local governments say we don't have a way to actually enforce uh, the rules that we've already set in place. So uh, it's a real challenge. And Cindy, we're not the only ones dealing with it. This is a, a worldwide challenge. I know there's jurisdictions in New York and Louisiana and in, in BC, uh, obviously. Uh, everyone is trying to grapple with how we navigate this as we go forward. What is the role of platforms like Airbnb, right? Where you, you've got a place like the city of Vancouver where they licensed it. You're supposed to have a license. Why Why can't we compel Airbnb to make sure that the, the units that are on there are legal? Well, uh, I mean, all the short-term uh, um, rental uh, organizations or companies, uh, they have a, a responsibility. They have a responsibility to work with the local government partners. And, and unfortunately, the feedback I've been getting is that just is not happening. 
Uh, we know uh, there were some high-profile cases uh, exactly around uh, Quebec recently with a fire. I know that there's been some commitments being made to uh, reform how these uh, companies operate. Um, but so far, what I hear from my local government partners is uh, that that's not happening. And so we're at the point where we uh, are going to have to take action. And, and again, it's going to require legislation and, uh, and it's coming this fall. Do you know of any jurisdiction that has been able to compel a company like Airbnb to say, you need to tell us which of these are legal and which are not legal? Well, uh, the only jurisdiction uh, in Canada that's been uh, making some progress is Quebec. Uh, and even they are looking to reform their legislation, which was is a couple of years old now, to, to make it up to date. Uh, there's a lot of jurisdictions in the U.S. that are looking at this uh, challenging question. Uh, New York uh, has pretty strict rules. So we're looking at other jurisdictions, uh, especially those that are leaders in this space, to, to learn from them so that we can uh, not make the same mistakes that they've made, but also ensure that the issues that our local governments have addressed, as well as many renters, by the way, that <laughs> continuously raise this issue, uh, are addressed. Right. But the problem also is that the people who are buying these houses, some of them, that's how they afford their their mortgages these days. Right. It's like they're, they can they say they make more money off short term rentals than long term rentals. Well, well, there's it varies. Uh, we have some folks who have uh, rental suites who choose to use short term rentals. That's one kind of category. We have some people who are buying homes. We have companies that are buying homes, uh, entire homes, uh, for, uh, for short-term rentals. And, uh, again, there's, there's different types of investors, uh, and then there's some people that just have a home and they want to rent their suite out. And so that makes it complex. Uh, but, again, we think that there's a way forward. We've been working with our partners, and we will bring that legislation forward uh, this fall to address it. I look forward to hearing about it. Thanks for your time. Okay, thanks to me. Be safe. You too. Ravi Kailan, BC's Minister of Housing, talking about short-term rentals, dealing with it on a more province-wide basis as opposed to like locally in jurisdictions like Vancouver where they have an issue. They thought they had tackled this by making sure there was supposed to be a, a business license. Well, great, except a lot of them have business license numbers that aren't legit. Maybe it's an expired listing. Maybe they're not complying with all the rules. Whatever the case may be, the city of Vancouver has a big problem right now. They're talking about cracking down, but they need also help from the provincial government to be able to enforce some of those rules, make them stick, essentially. But as we talked about, a lot of people, that's how they make more money. Maybe that's how you're affording your mortgage these days. Maybe you're not the big company. You're not buying a house, uh, you know, with a company so that you can do this for a business. Maybe that's just how you're getting a little bit of extra income. So how do you balance that? Want to weigh in? Love to hear from you on this one. This is a this is challenging for a lot of municipalities out there. Do you think that there should be a harsh crackdown on short-term rentals like Airbnb? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com or you know what? Call her buzz line too or text her buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canadians are very concerned about public safety. Of course we are. I mean, we're concerned about violent crime in our communities. We're concerned about repeat public offenders, violent gun crime. And these are things that we have seen a lot of increases of in the last five years. It's also the big reason why Premier David Eby has been pushing so hard for things like bail reform. Now, we thought he was going to get help from Ottawa on that, but legislation didn't make it through the last session. There is a new justice minister, but that doesn't necessarily mean these issues are now going to be a priority. So there's a lot of concern about that. 
Now, if you ask the opposition, they say there are plenty of things that could be done, and they are making some promises on that front. Rob Moore is a Conservative MP and Shadow Minister for Justice and Attorney General of Canada and joins us now. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Now, BC obviously has a number of issues that BC would like to see tackled here, but what do you think isn't working and needs to be fixed? Well, you know, the the entire approach that this current government has taken, this Liberal government in Ottawa, over the last eight years has resulted in some of the numbers we just saw released last week. Uh, Over 100% increase in gang-related violence, uh, violent crime up 39%. In Vancouver, uh, homicides up 55%. This is all just in the last eight years, so a dramatic increase in violent crime. And what we've been saying is that we have to deal with repeat violent offenders, particularly around gang violence. Unfortunately, the government has moved in the exact wrong, exact wrong direction. They've introduced a number of pieces of legislation and passed them that have created a catch and release system. And we're hearing this right from, uh, you know, British Columbia, right across the country to the Atlantic provinces. There's Examples, for example, in a big rural community of repeat violent offenders that should be behind bars that instead are released into the community. And, you know, we did a study on bail reform at our Justice Committee in Ottawa. And what we heard from police and from communities is that it's, it's not a huge number of Canadians committing these crimes. It's a small number of repeat offenders that are doing a tremendous amount of damage. And this was a very deliberate step that has been taken by this government over the last eight years to um, increase the number of offenders that should be behind bars that are out on the streets. Okay, so then what can be done to fix that law or tweak that to improve that situation, in your opinion? Well, there's a couple of things. One is is Bill C-5 that was passed by this Liberal government, which essentially, for serious gun crimes, it used to be there was mandatory jail time. That would take a serious uh, gun criminal off the streets, and it certainly sends a message that as a society, we don't want repeat violent gun criminals out on our streets. Instead, uh, they've re- they, with Bill C-5, they have done away with all mandatory jail time for gun crimes. And then with their other bill, Bill C-75, that is what created a catch-and-release bail system, which judges tell us um, they feel their hands are tied that they have an obligation to, re- to, in almost all cases, release offenders back onto the street, even if they've committed a serious offense. So those problematic provisions in those two bills have to be repealed, and conservatives would do that. We need to make sure that if someone is a, is a criminal that uses a gun and they're a repeat offender, that they get the appropriate uh, jail time that they should get and that they're taken off the streets. And it's, you know, we've said it's jail, not bail for repeat violent gun criminals. And that's exactly what's happening right now. We heard stats from uh, some of the urban centers where individuals who were out on bail for a gun crime were arrested and put before a judge for another gun crime and then received bail again. That was the testimony we heard from chiefs of police at our justice committee. No, and we, in in our country, if we want, you go ahead. I was going to say we've certainly heard that here in BC. I mean, we've been talking a lot about that. But here's what I wonder about that: Do we need to be more specific with sentencing guidelines, or do we need to provide more leeway to judges? Uh, because, as you said, judges say their hands are tied; they have to follow the guidelines. We've heard that as 
well. So which one of those is it? Is it we need to be more specific and say this is mandatory or do we need to give the judge the ability to impose harsher sentences? Well, it's both, Simi, and both of those have we've moved in the wrong direction. As I mentioned, under Bill C-5, the liberals repealed all mandatory jail time for serious gun offenses. So that was a guideline from Parliament that says if someone commits robbery with a firearm, if someone uses a firearm for extortion or in drive-by shootings, we as, as parliamentarians representing Canadians, we feel that that deserves jail time. The Liberals um, tore that up and they say, no, no mandatory jail time for robbery with a firearm or those other offenses. So we need to be more prescriptive, as you've said, and, and as, as parliamentarians, as a government, say, uh, yes, in these cases, there needs to be jail time. But also, on the bail reform, they've, they've instructed judges to use the least restrictive measures, a principle of restraint, it's called, which... Judges have interpreted to say, um, look, if someone comes before me, it's going to be very difficult for uh, that person to be held in custody. And in almost all cases, they're going to receive bail, uh, including for repeat gun crimes. So we need to amend that legislation as well. So uh, conservatives have said, like, this is legislation that we brought in when we were in government. We brought in some of these mandatory jail sentences for serious gun crimes. They've been constitutionally upheld um, by our Supreme Court, and uh, the Liberals struck them down over the last eight years, and the results are in. You know, it'd be one thing if, if the Liberals could point to some statistic that suggests that what they're doing is working, that catch and release works, that allowing repeat violent gun offenders to be out on the street works. But StatsCan tells us violent gang crime is up 108 percent violent homicides gang-related homicides 108 percent violent crime is up 39 percent in just eight years there's really no way to account for that other than this seismic shift in policy brought in by the liberals that is introduced catch and release into our justice system so would you like to see this addressed? I know we were waiting for this legislation in June. It didn't happen. We're hoping, I know that Premier David Eby is that it will be tabled again in the fall. Uh, is that something that you would like to see addressed? Absolutely. We need to see um, from, from the government of Canada, which is responsible for the criminal code, we need to see a number of measures that I just mentioned. Real bail reform that says that if you're a repeat violent offender that's a danger to uh, Canadians, a danger to your community, that in those individuals are held in custody and not released onto the streets only to reoffend. That's what we're finding. The, the, the stats bear that out. This is not a huge number of Canadians committing these crimes. It's a small number of Canadians that should be in custody that are out on the streets. So, yes, in the fall, we need to see significant bail reform. We also need to see reform to our criminal code. That, that says that repeat violent gun criminals are held behind bars. Is there a way, do you think, to target that legislation to make sure you're getting those repeat offenders and not casting a wider net? Absolutely, and that, that's exactly what the legislation that Conservatives have brought in has done. It's targeted. It doesn't cast a wide net. It's targeted at repeat gun criminals. And that's, you know, that's the type of legislation that we brought in. It's targeted at, you know, the, the bail provisions should be targeted for those that, that are a threat to their community. We're not doing anyone a favor 
you know, Canadians at large, the community these offenders are being allowed uh, back into, or the offender themselves, if someone has not been rehabilitated, has not served an appropriate sentence, has not been given the opportunity uh, to, to make amends for the crimes that they've committed, and then we're saying, you know what, you've committed, uh, you've been charged with ser- another serious firearms offense, drive-by shooting, robbery with a firearm, not only are you not going to get any jail time, you're not even going to be held in custody during your, uh, b- before your trial, you're going to be out on the street. And what, what's happening is those very individuals, those higher risk offenders, they're doing exactly what Canadians would expect, exactly what conservatives said would happen. They're reoffending while they're out on the street. And the numbers from Statistics Canada, which of course is nonpartisan, the raw numbers coming in say, yeah, gang violence is up over 100%. Violent crime is up 39%. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's urban or rural as well. This is happening across the board, across our country. It's happening in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, but it's also happening in our smaller communities. And it's a, it's a small number of offenders that if we had a true justice system, they would be held in custody, but instead we're allowing them to re-victimize Canadians. That has to stop. There's legislative tools to make that happen. We just have to have a government that, that will do it. And having a minister of justice newly appointed that thinks that this, this increase in crime is all in Canadians' heads is really problematic. Uh, Mr. Moore, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. It was good talking to you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you heard of something called the Lunar Codex? It's an archive of art, of writing, music, film, and more. It's essentially the digitized work of thousands of artists, and it's being put into a time capsule to be archived on the moon. Now, it would be really something to be one of the people whose work is chosen for this, wouldn't it? So let's find out what that feels like. Our next guest is 11 years old, a poet from Toronto, and is the youngest artist to be featured in the Lunar Codex. Mazzy Sleep is with us now. Hi, Mazzy. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. And congratulations. This must be pretty exciting. Yeah, thank you. It is really exciting. So it is a poem that you wrote. First of all, tell us about the poem. Well, I I wrote it, obviously, about the moon. And I was just really trying to meditate on the moon for that, but it wasn't hard to get inspired by the moon since it just has so much literary symbolism. It's just such an icon, you know? And was this something that you had written before you heard about the Lunar Codex or you were already inspired by the moon? I was commissioned by Sam Peralta, the founder of the Lunar Codex project, to do this for the Lunar Codex specifically. And so you thought, all right, I can think about the moon. I can do this. Yeah. And so are you happy with the fact that your work is going to be going up there? Like, how does that feel to know you're going to be archived? Oh, it's so exciting. It really is like, it really is like every artist's dream to have something like this happen. Just like the moon in general is just something that writers and people in general have swooned over for so long. So to have your work on it surviving independently from you on the moon is just really crazy in a good way. Yeah. Mazzy, when did you know that you were a poet? Well, it was like, first, initially, I was writing short stories. But at some point, I just read poetry, and I was like, huh, pretty cool, too. And since then, I've written many other 
just like other types of writing, a novel, two feature screenplays, lyrics, and thousands of short stories and poems, of course. But yeah, I would say poetry has always just been there. And it's like with short stories, it's kind of like my literary home, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Something I can always come back to. You're the youngest poet ever published by Queen's Quarterly, and they've been in business for more than 100 years. So clearly you are doing something right, right? So that's pretty impressive. What is it about poetry that inspires you? Is it the form? Is it experimenting with that? Like, what do you do? Well, it's just the free form style of it. There's so much freedom and just... I love poetic pieces in general, not just poetry, but things that sound poetic, even short stories and novels, everything that's just been that more elegant and flowy style. Although I wouldn't say everyone who's a poet is elegant and flowy, but a lot of my favorite poetry is. And I guess the fact that it's so, like I said, so much more freedom. Now, you've said that you started writing about three years ago. You were eight years old at that point, and it was because you read a particular piece. Tell me about that. Yes, it was Ray Bradbury. I think it was The Illustrated Man. It was really touching for me and just kind of led to the spark. And then I just started writing. And he still is my favorite author. And... Actually, I have the book, like, around me. The collected short stories of Ray Bradbury, call it, like, the book in my house. The like, book. you just say, where is the book? <laughs> and that's a... Everybody knows what you're talking about when you say, where is the book? Yeah. Who, who, all scuffed up because I've read it so many times. Oh, I know that feeling. What are some of your favorite authors? Well... Obviously, Ray Bradbury, and then there's also Hirky Murakami. He's like a surrealist mm-hmm. author. And then Kelly Link, who's magic realism. And so many, oh my God. One of my favorite poets is Margaret Atwood and also Sarah Teasdale. These are all uh, amazing. So what inspires you to keep writing? Is it, you know, as simple as you look at the moon, you thought about the moon and you were inspired to write about it? I guess so. It's just, it's such a natural thing, I guess. It's just instinctive. I just sit down and I'm like, okay, time to write. And then I write. Would you mind sharing your poem with us that's going to be in the Lunar Codex? Yes. Ringed, winged. Do you want me to read it? Yeah, read it. it I would love to hear it. Please read it. All right. Shaded pendant, accomplice of the cracking stars. Silver as the sliver a quivering etching in the lucent surface, pitted, glorious, rising above all earthly scope. We have traveled the line of space, conquered perhaps, observed, documented, but not lived like we live this earth, and just a spectacle, a speck in a deep infinity, shaded pendant, accomplice of the cracking stars. Massey, I am in awe. That is beautiful. Thank you. Are you inspired to write more about the moon? I'm always inspired to write the moon, I'll tell you. Really? It is. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a beautiful thing. And just the just looking at it is ins- inspiring. Just images of it. I'm like, oh, yeah. 
Well, your work is going to be up there. You can then look up at the moon and know that that's where your work is archived. Listen, Massey, congratulations, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you.